tonight we're in chapter 29 of Isaiah, and uh, this section of Isaiah from chapter 28 through about chapter 35 is mostly focused on the Lord's people. So chapter 13 through 27 took a, a broader focus. 13 to 23 was the oracles to the nations. And then 24 to 27 took an even bigger focus than that, looking kind of globally and even off into the distant future. But now Isaiah is kind of zooming in his focus just a little bit more again and is bringing us down closer to focus on Israel, specifically Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. And instead of looking way off into the far distant future, he seems to be looking at events that are just right on the horizon to the people of Judah. And so in this particular chapter, the Lord is going to reveal how he is going to humble Jerusalem, how he is going to to bring Jerusalem down and chasten her because of her rebellion. But then as we often see in Isaiah, he ends with a ray of hope. He ends with a transformation, an exaltation of Jerusalem. And so let's look at this chapter together. Woe to David's city. And the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 16, is focused on the humbling or the bringing down of Jerusalem. And in the first eight verses, we see specifically a description of Jerusalem under siege, surrounded by enemies. And most commentators think that even though the specific enemies are not mentioned in this passage, that probably what is in view is what is described in chapters 35 and 36 of Isaiah, which is the invasion of Sennacherib of the Assyrian army and him surrounding and besieging Jerusalem. So that is probably what's in view here in chapter 29. So, Jerusalem under siege. Verse 1 says, Woe to you, Ariel. Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. One of the big issues of interpretation in verse 1 is the meaning of Ariel. It is a very interesting word. It's, um, it's one that uh, Isaiah refers to the city of David, which is Jerusalem, became the capital of Israel. It was the city that David took from the Jebusites and then made that the capital of his kingdom and became known as Mount Zion, the place where the temple was built. And he refers to Jerusalem here as Ariel. Some have said this means Lion of God. But that, it's kind of doubtful whether or not that's really what the word means because the evidence for it is pretty shallow and and it doesn't really fit the context here very well. Others have suggested that it means a hearth, uh, specifically an altar hearth. And you can see at the very end, the L at the end of the word, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that E-L ending That's just a shortened form of Elohim, or El, which is God. And so maybe a a way of thinking about this word would be like an altar hearth of God. 
And the altar hearth is the place, uh, it's the uppermost part of the altar where the animal was actually placed on the altar and sacrificed. And so it was where uh, the burning of the sacrifice took place. And so what's interesting is, is he calls Jerusalem an altar hearth. And what he seems to be doing is he seems to be drawing a word picture. And that word picture is this. Think of the altar hearth inside the, the temple in Jerusalem where the sacrifices would have been made. And now it's almost as if Isaiah is saying the whole city of Jerusalem is now going to become that altar hearth, that place of sacrifice. So what Isaiah seems to be doing is the altar hearth in the temple, he is kind of expanding that to say the whole city is going to become the altar hearth, which is kind of a way of showing or saying that all of Jerusalem is going to become the place of sacrifice. Meaning that when the enemies come in and attack, all of Jerusalem is going to be the burning place, if that makes sense. So the altar hearth is where the animal would be burned, sacrificed. When the enemies attack, all of Jerusalem is going to be the place that's burning on fire. And so it's kind of an ominous reference to referring to Jerusalem as this altar hearth. But also he does this for another reason. And that is not just to say difficult times are coming when the enemy attacks, but also there is a religious reason why I think he uses this term. And that is because, and we'll see this in the next few verses, that is that Judah and Jerusalem at this time had become, they, they had become to the point where they were just involved in religious ritual that they became reliant on the sacrifices, on the animal sacrifices, on the religious rituals. And so like it says here at the end of verse one, add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Probably referring to the religious calendar and the religious festivals and the different annual sacrifices and timely sacrifices that would be offered. Isaiah seems to be speaking in irony here saying Keep on doing your rote ritual sacrifices and your festivals, but they're meaningless because they're empty. They're, there's no substance to them. And because of the emptiness of your religious ritual and your disobedience to God, all of Jerusalem is going to become a place of sacrifice. And so it's, it's a very stark warning to Judah that God's chastening hand is going to fall on it. Verse 2 says, Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. And so that is basically what we have at the end of verse 2 is very closely related to the word Ariel, which he uses in verse 1. So God is saying, even though you go on with your sacrifices and you carry out your yearly festivals, you can go on doing your empty religious rituals, but I am going to come and judge you. And even though he's going to be using instruments like the Assyrian army as his instruments of judgment, God says, I'm coming to besiege you. 
I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. And this is just describing what would normally happen when one nation attacked a city. And so God is saying, I'm doing this because he's the sovereign Lord. But really, he's going to use the Assyrian army to do this. And the Assyrian army is going to come and surround Jerusalem. And you may have seen images or even in movies, you may have seen how in the ancient world they would attack a city. So in the ancient world and in Jerusalem, you had a city that was surrounded by walls. It was its fortification to keep enemies out. But what would happen is they, the enemy would come and they would encamp, they would circle the city, basically for one main reason was to cut off their supplies. So they would cut off any food that was coming in. They would keep people from escaping, going out. If they could, they would cut off their water supply. Like if they had an external water supply from a river or a creek or something, they would cut that off to start to starve the city into submission. And then they would start to build towers and ramps up so they could get over the walls. If they could, they would dig under the walls, basically however they could to bring that city into submission. That's what they would do in a siege. And that's what is described here in verse 3. That's what the Assyrian army is going to do to Jerusalem. And you're going to be brought low. You will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. And verse 4 just seems to be talking about a, a place of humility, a place of weakness, a place of mourning, and crying out because of sorrow, probably because of the enemy that has besieged them. And one of the commentators I read, I think, made a really good observation, and that is the people of Judah would not be brought to tears, and these kind of penitent cries through the preaching of the prophet. So he would bring them down to the ground and bring out these penitent cries with the use of a chastening hand. And so the people of, Israel, of Judah, instead of repenting, instead of you know, crying out to, to the Lord for forgiveness, now they're going to have to cry out because, for mercy because they're being attacked. They're being sieged by the enemy. And this is God's chastening hand on them because of their disobedience. But then just as heavy as that is, God's saying, I'm going to seize Jerusalem. I'm using the Assyrian army, but I'm going to bring my chastening hand on you. As heavy as that is, Isaiah quickly turns in verse 5 and reveals that God then is not going to allow it to be completely successful. He's going to, he's going to bring it in, but then he's also going to repel it. Verse 5 says, but your enemies will become like fine dust. The ruthless hordes like blown chaff suddenly in an instant. It's hard to know for sure because chapter 29 does not specifically say the Assyrian army. But if we see that as the historical fulfillment of it, which is described in chapter 35 and 36, then what happened in real history is Sennacherib, who was the general of the Assyrian army, he came against Jerusalem and surrounded it. And with very proud and arrogant words said, I'm going to destroy your city. You're going to be my servants and my slaves. You might as well surrender to me now. And all of Judah and Jerusalem are scared. They're frightened. 
And God says, I'm going to take care of this. And through a mighty supernatural deliverance with the use of mighty angels, God destroys Sennacherib's army. And the siege fails. So if that could be what this is referring to is, first, God's going to allow this to happen with his chastening hand, but then he is going to step in and deliver them. And their enemies are going to be repelled. The enemies are going to become like dust. The ruthless hordes blown like chaff in an instant. The Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. So a big, mighty deliverance. A big, mighty deliverance. And God is going to do that with his hand of power. And he did that against Sennacherib in the incoming Assyrian army. Verse 7, Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, that is Jerusalem, that attack her in her fortress and besiege her, will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night, in the sense that when you dream something, you think it's real, but then you wake up and it's gone. So like the hordes, the Assyrian army, and, and them attacking Jerusalem, they were going to see and believe that they would be victorious and that they would win against Jerusalem, but God's going to pull it away from them just like a dream. And it's not going to be reality. As when a hungry person dreams of eating, but when he wakes up, he's still hungry. Or as when a thirsty person dreams of drinking, but awakens faint and thirsty still, so will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. So God's going to bring the army, part of his chastening and punishment of his people, but then he's also going to defend them. And he's not going to allow that to ultimately succeed. And you ask, why would God do that? Well, in, in the context of this time in history, God is still prompting and seeking to draw Jerusalem and Judah to repentance. And by this time that this happens, the northern kingdom of Israel is already gone. They've already been defeated by Assyria. But Jerusalem, he's not going to allow to be defeated by Assyria, but he's going to threaten it, I think, to awaken them and to alert them to the possibility of falling so that they would stop putting their trust in human things. They would stop putting their trust in their alliance to Egypt. They would stop putting their trust in their wisdom, but they would trust God and they would turn to him in faith. And so he allows this to come, but he's not yet to the point where he's going to completely bring down Jerusalem. Then verses 9 through 14 describe a condition of spiritual blindness. And I think this is still talking about Jerusalem and it's talking about the leaders of Judah, their civil leaders, as well as their religious leaders and how that they had succumbed to a spiritual blindness. Verse 9 says, Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. Remember back in chapter 6 with the call of Isaiah? And in the call of Isaiah, God said to Isaiah, I'm going to send you to this people, but they're going to be seeing 
They're going to be ever seeing, but not really see. They're going to be ever hearing, but not really hear. Their ears are going to be closed, their eyes closed, their hearts hardened. And God says, I'm going to bring this spiritual stupor, if you will. And that was a part of his chastening hand on them. And this, this, that's probably what this is also referring to, is the people of Judah, especially their leaders, thought they could see, but really they were blind. They thought they knew what was going on, but really they're just stumbling around like a drunk. It's a, it's a spiritual stupor, a spiritual blindness. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets, he says. He has covered your heads, the seers. So at this time, you had faithful, true prophets like Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah. You had faithful prophets, but you also had false prophets. You also had prophets who would tell the king whatever the king wanted to hear. You had prophets who would not give a bad message to the king. He would only give an encouraging, positive message to the king. Prophets who would never call the king to repentance, who would never call the people to repentance. And Isaiah, a true prophet of God, is saying all of these prophets, they basically have bags over their heads and their eyes are closed and they can't see. They're leading you astray. They're kind of like the blind leading the blind. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. Meaning it's hidden from you. The idea of what Isaiah is proclaiming to them, even though they're hearing it, it's like sealed up. It's not getting through. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I can't. It is sealed. So whether someone's educated or not educated, Isaiah's message is still the same. They're blind and they can't see. They can't understand what is really going on. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, they will answer, I don't know how to read. So either one, they're, they're blind to the truth. There's a spiritual blindness, a hard-heartedness. And so Isaiah preaches but he's not getting a response from the people. It's a spiritual apathy and blindness. All the while, they're doing all these religious rituals and they're going through the motions and they think everything's fine because they keep offering sacrifices on the altar and they keep going through their annual festivals. But the Lord says, you're really spiritually blind. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. Jesus quotes these words in the gospel and applies it to the Pharisees of his day. And Isaiah is saying it to the religious leaders and the false prophets and the priests of his day. They say they love me. They say that they're near to me. They say that they worship me, but it's really just empty words. And instead of really focusing on the truth of what God has said in his written word, they've built up all these other traditions and rules that they follow more faithfully than the word of God itself. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. 
And again, I, I think that still goes back to the spiritual blindness in that people can be intelligent, people can be wise, but they can be blind to reality. They can be blind to spiritual truth. And the Apostle Paul speaks using this kind of language in the New Testament when he says God is going to confound the wisdom of the wise. And he, he has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the strong. So God, in his grace, grants eyes to see, not necessarily to those who are wise and intelligent by the world standards, but because God grants eyes to see by grace. And right now, these uh, people of Judah, their religious leaders, the priests, they have blinders over their eyes. They can be wise and intelligent, but they're just, they're not seeing, and they have an empty form of religion. And so spiritual blindness. And that spiritual blindness results in essentially a practical atheism. Now, not a philosophical, full-out atheism of there is no God, but basically living their life day to day as if there isn't, as if there is no God. So woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? And so it's a basically a disregarding of God and doing whatever they want to do and thinking that God doesn't see or that God doesn't care. It's essentially a practical atheism. Now, all of that, I think, much of what Isaiah is describing of the Israelite people back in 700 BC, we can still identify with in our own lives. Because there are times in our lives where we have an empty form of religion. Where, you know, we, we come to church on Sundays and we go through the motions, but, and, we, and our mouths are moving, but is our heart really in it? And the people of Judah and Jerusalem, they were bringing sacrifices and they were saying with their mouths that we are near to the Lord, but their hearts were far from him. And so just... A thought for us, are there, are there times when we just go through the motions and have a, an empty form of, of ritualism, but our hearts are really far from God? And then are there times in our lives where we basically live our lives as if God doesn't exist? I think it's, it's easy to fall into that trap that, you know, we can just get up and go through our, our routines and our habits and you know, I'll make this plan and today I'm going to go over here and do this. And, and I, I like to do this, so I'm going to do that. And, and none of it brings God into our thoughts at all. Can we, can, we can fall into a practical atheism. Not that any of us deny God at all, but that we just sometimes don't think about him or about his word or, or how his sovereignty over life should govern the way that we live. And so he calls the people of Jerusalem out on that, on their practical atheism and their spiritual blindness. But then the rest of the passage, all of that was God humbling Jerusalem. But the rest of the passage is very much more positive about the kind of work that God is going to do 
among his people. It's a, it really describes a, an incredible, glorious transformation. In verses 17 through 21, it is God bringing justice, bringing moral order back and setting things right. In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Now, that's going back to early in the chapter, isn't it? So back earlier, it was talking about a spiritual blindness in that people thought they knew what was going on, but it was like a sealed up scroll and, and they couldn't read it. They, even if they could read, they couldn't understand it. It was sealed up. Their eyes were blinded. They were in a, a stupor like drunkenness. But now this is saying at a time that the Lord will bring and, and the reference to, in, to Lebanon verse 17, the, the whole point of verse 17 seems to be an agricultural reference to emphasize the fact that, that this is near. That, that God is about to do this and brings in this, this example from Lebanon and, it, and its trees and its fertile fields as an example of how soon that the Lord is going to bring this about. And in that day, he's going to bring about a transformation from spiritual blindness to being able to see and hear the words of God. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And this could be, in verse 19, a reference to the restoration of justice and mercy in the community of God's people. Because one of the things that the prophets ridicule or criticized and rebuked the people of Israel for is moral injustice, social injustice, in which especially the poor would be oppressed. Widows, the fatherless, they wouldn't be taken care of. There, there wasn't justice in the courts. And this seems to be saying that when God does this transformation and brings spiritual light into Jerusalem, that the, the needy, the poor, instead of being oppressed, they'll rejoice because God has brought righteousness and restored justice to his people. The ruthless will vanish the mockers will disappear and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. So God's going to lift up the fallen and the impoverished and the oppressed and all the oppressors and the violent he's going to remove. So God's going to bring justice, make, it, make things right. Those who with a word make someone out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court and with the false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Verse 21 is a continuation of the people that God is going to get rid of. So people who pervert justice, people who lie, bear false witness, uh, people who seek to bring false suits against others in court, all the evil, all the oppressors, God's going to rid out of his land. And verse 22 through 24, the, the passage ends with really a, a description of of great revival, of spiritual awakening. Therefore, this is what the Lord, who redeemed Abraham, says to the descendants of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. 
When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. Verses 20 through 24 describe a people who live in God's city, Ariel or Jerusalem, a people who live in God's city, but now who love what is right, who love what is holy. Uh, people who, instead of cl- complaining and, and refusing to hear instruction, they welcome instruction. So it's a, it's a great awakening and a great transformation. And probably the best way to understand this, this, these very positive aspects that are here at the end of chapter 29 is, is like earlier in Isaiah. Now this goes back many chapters, but do you remember there was a section of Isaiah where, where Isaiah presented an idealistic picture of Jerusalem, of how it was supposed to be, but then he described the way things really were at his time and how they were failing and in, in rebellion, apostasy, idolatry. And then he turned back around and said, and this is what God's going to do. Basically, here's what Jerusalem should be like, but here's what it's really like now. And then it ended with another positive picture of Jerusalem. This is what God's going to do in the future. This is how he's going to remake Jerusalem to be like this. That's probably what this is, is, is God's going to bring his chastening hand, but then for the purpose of making Jerusalem holy, of restoring it to what it's supposed to be. Now, when is this fulfilled? When, when does this happen? Well, we, could, we can say that maybe in a small way, this did happen after exile. That one of the besetting sins of Israel all the way throughout their history was idolatry, wasn't it? Pretty much from the time they left Egypt all the way to the time of the Babylonian captivity, their besetting sin was idolatry, worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, of the Babylonians, of the Egyptians. And what's interesting is after God sends them to Babylon and brings them back home, idolatry Worshipping other gods, pretty much gone from Israel. Even in the time, you know, so in the time of like Nehemiah and Ezra, Malachi, these prophets after the exile, they were not engaging in false in, in idolatry, worshiping false gods. And from what we know of the history of Israel from during those silent years, from Malachi to the time of Jesus, they weren't engaged in idolatry. It was for the most part given over to monotheism, the worship of the one God. Now that doesn't mean that, that there was you know, no unrighteousness going on in Israel at that time, but that God through his chastening hand and through captivity, he did rid Israel of that besetting sin of worshiping images and statues and false gods. 
Uh, by the time Jesus came, they had all kinds of problems, though, didn't they? I mean, you had the Pharisees and false worship and ritualism and, and false rules and traditions of men. So it wasn't that they didn't have their problems, but idolatry and the worship of many gods, that was pretty much eradicated from Israel because of the captivity. So we might could say there's a small fulfillment of it in the near term, but I think really to, 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 to have the full meaning of verses 22 through 24, I think you have to have the, the end when God makes everything new. When God brings his kingdom down to earth, when a new Jerusalem comes down. So this kind of everyone loving holiness and people doing what's right, to me, that's going to be life in the new Jerusalem. And, and that's what this is looking forward to ultimately. But God is going to chasten his people, but then there's hope, right? There's hope. And there's, there's hope then for people who are going through times of difficulty because they can put their trust in God. And, and that's really one of the overriding themes of this whole section of Isaiah. Chapter 28 to 35 the, the whole section is really about don't trust in yourselves. Don't trust Egypt. Don't trust your political alliances. Trust God. That, that is kind of an overriding theme of this whole section. And so when the Assyrian army comes and besieges you, you need to remember that God is sovereign over all of this. You need to trust him and, and put your faith in him and, and follow his words and and there's a great lesson in that for us, too, that we're often tempted to put our hope and our trust in ourselves or in, in our human ingenuity or wisdom. But Isaiah reminds the people, your trust needs to be in God. There's great hope when our faith is in him.